We are the first generation to feel the impact of climate change and the last generation that can do something about it. People love a headline. People want a silver bullet for climate change. And it, you know, there isn't one really other than decarbonising the economy. So if you think about a trillion trees, that is the same land area as the whole of the United States of America. At the Wildlife Trust, we are beaver ready. We don't need Michael Gove for that one. Hi there, and welcome to the podcast, Generation One. I'm Matt Winning. This week, we're talking trees. Trees are often hailed as a bit of a climate crisis hero. Plant more trees. And companies jump on this bandwagon, and they say, for every coffee bot, we'll plant a tree. But what does this mean for the climate and the climate crisis? What is the impact of more trees? And the most important single question for today's episode, why do trees matter? You're listening to UCL Generation One, turning science and ideas into climate action. I am joined with Mark Maslin again. With Mark Maslin? By Mark Maslin? I don't know what the correct I, I'm just here so. okay Matt I, I, I exist I am therefore I am part you, of you this exist. Yeah, you're here. wonderful ecology called our podcast there's this whole thing about trees which is there was this paper that was published a couple of years ago we should uh, actually plant a trillion trees yeah so if you think about a trillion trees, that is the same land area as the whole of the United States of America. Right, so, right, right. You know, it's, it's a big undertaking. And even exactly. Donald Trump got, on, uh, got with this idea and said, yes, it's a good idea. Plant a trillion trees. And they said, well, this will solve climate change. They, they sort of forgot. Even if you did that, that would take out perhaps five years of air pollution. So it really doesn't it's- solve climate change. It helps. Yeah. And actually, it's something positive if you do it in the right place. But do you know what? It's not going to be the great solution. It, so it's not the silver bullet in terms of solving climate change. OK, well, let's introduce our guest for today. That is Matt Disney, who is a professor of remote sensing in the Department of Geography at University College London. Matt, welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Not at all. I'm interested to hear about basically you seem to be using technology to look at trees. Yes, that's right. So, uh, you know, my title, remote sensing, so that's looking at the the Earth's surface using satellites and aircraft and any bits of kit that we can get our hands on that give us a better picture of of what's happening. And I've been particularly interested in trees and forests over the last five or ten years. And what I've really been doing is using kind of high-resolution, three-dimensional mapping techniques that fire out millions of laser beams a second from an instrument on a tripod and that build up a three-dimensional picture of trees and forests. And we've been dragging this kind of equipment through tropical forests over the last few years to build up these very, very detailed three-dimensional pictures of trees which help us understand um, the relationship between their structure, how much carbon they store, and, of course, then that's the link to climate. Got you. So, yeah, obviously, if anyone doesn't know out there, trees pretty important, soak up carbon kind of store it, keep it safe for a bit. Depending on what happens to them. Exactly, yeah, depending if, if, they're, if they're still uh, still there. That sounds, first of all, fascinating. And you're basically just creating cool maps of trees. Well, that's, you know, that's one aspect of it that is, yeah, that's, that's very kind of eye-catching, is that we build these kind of three-dimensional um, pictures of the trees that are very striking. And But it 
enables us to kind of measure the size and volume and structure of trees in a way that basically hasn't been possible right. to do before. Because you don't want to cut them open. You don't want to cut them down. In, well, first question is, how do you weigh the tropical forest? Right, yeah, right? yeah. So, you know, Good there's, question. There's a kind of question that, you know, is sort of occurring to me is like, how do you, how do you even weigh a tree to get you the carbon? Yeah, you don't want to do that one at a time. Well, sometimes you have to, and the, the only way to do it for real is to cut it down, to cut it into chunks, right. to dry those chunks out to get rid of the water, yeah. and then whatever you've got left, the kind of the dried bit of wood, about half of that is carbon. And so to, to do that for even a small tree is, a, is, you know, is hard work, it's tedious, it's expensive, and the tree's gone. And it's gone, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you think about that for a 50, 60 metre tropical giant in the middle of you know, Borneo or the Congo Basin, um, obviously you don't want to cut them down. So you know, the methods that we've been developing is a kind of alternative to that. So, so Matt, I mean, this is what I love about science because we're all each other's groupies because <laughs> your, 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 your stuff is just so amazing. But can you explain to the listeners, how do the lasers actually give you a picture? I mean, sort of like, how do you actually get this sort of picture of the actual trees? Okay, so you've got basically an instrument sitting on a tripod which fires out pulses of laser light several hundred thousand times a second. And those laser beams have a range of up to about a kilometre. So they're in the near infrared, so you can't see them. And they, they speed out at the speed of light into the forest. And if they hit something, then some of that energy is returned back to the instrument. It records it and it says, OK, this pulse hit something at this XYZ location, you know, 77 metres away. Uh-huh. So it's a point. And so if we do that hundreds of thousands of times a second, we build up millions of points that tell us where there is stuff yep. in, in the area around us, in the volume around us then you find out things like you know a big tropical tree can have 10 15 kilometers of branches in it wow. if you laid them out end to end you know these branches can we found a tree that we scanned in Kew Gardens for example a big uh, chestnut tree there had 28 kilometers of branches in it some <laughs> amazing numbers so d- didn't you do somebody's famous didn't you have their oak tree and i have to say the results from that just blew my mind yeah, so we um, we got asked by the BBC to go and scan Dame Judy Dench's back garden and her, <laughs> her oak tree, uh, and I've had more communication and kudos for doing that than anything else I'll ever do in my entire career. But that was a, that was very entertaining because she was great to work with, and a really good sport, and fascinated by the science that came out of it. I was hoping for a story like that, and we got exactly what we celebrity wanted. trees, celebrity that's, that's trees. I mean, it's a TV show. We've it got is, absolutely. But, but Matt, don't worry. Now, after this podcast, there were just be talking about the podcast yeah they'll be talking about the podcast yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, dame judy (laughs) dench nothing to our podcast so what was the outcome of that tree because i mean it was a really quite old oak tree and i was quite amazed by the size of it was well so that tree is about 200 years old so in terms of oaks it's a good you know early middle age about the same as me you know (laughs) early strong early middle age still strong Um, but there are trees, there are oak trees around in Britain that are estimated to be over a thousand years old in wow. places like Windsor Great Park and in Savernake Forest that are mostly huge and hollow and there's very little foliage left growing, but the trees are still alive, they're still growing, but because they're hollow, they're essentially impossible to age. Dame Judy's tree was... She's not um, a thousand years old, is she? No, she's not. She's, she's ageless. Yeah, um, exactly. Was it was about 25 tons of carbon, and it had about 18 kilometres of branches in it. So she was kind of blown away when we were, you know, giving those <laughs> those figures. But you know, to put that into context, like I say, a, a big tropical hardwood. We we measured the tallest tree, quote unquote, in the tropics. 
possibly the tallest flowering plant in the world. It's an angiosperm tree in, in Southeast Asia, which was just over 100 metres tall and weighed 80 tonnes. Wow. Um, but what about the argument that we should be planting a trillion trees? Your, your technology can actually tell us where they're being planted, how much carbon they're storing. I mean, is this a good idea? Well, going back to what we're finding with our, you know, our measurements of, of carbon in trees and forests, first of all, bottom line is we're showing that the current estimates seem to be an underestimate of how much carbon is stored in trees and forests. And that's because in order to do, you know, doing one tree or 100 trees or 1,000 trees is all very well, but you need to extrapolate across the whole of the tropics, three trillion trees. And in order to do that, you need simplified models, you need satellite estimates. And the models that are used currently to, to generate those estimates of how much carbon is in tropical forests, we think are a fair underestimate. Planting trees, this idea of a trillion trees that, you know, that Mark, you know, you brought up, it's, it's one that very much catches people's attention. It's, it's it, you know, people love a catchy number, people love a headline, people want a silver bullet for climate change. And it, you know, there isn't one really other than decarbonizing the economy. So that's the silver bullet, but that's the one that people don't really want to hear. You plant loads of trees in places where maybe, let's think about Northern China, where there's huge afforestation programs going on, which in general is there to do things like protecting hydrological systems and preventing you know, flash flooding and runoff, good thing. From a climate perspective, those trees are actually quite dark in colour compared to the background, so they actually absorb more sunlight. So the surface actually gets warmer than it would have done if you left it with no trees and snow cover in the winter because it changes right. what we call the albedo, the yeah. reflectivity of the surface. And when you do that on a very large scale, you suddenly have impacts on you know, heating up the surface, which are unintended consequences. You're actually making things warmer, which evaporates more water, which affects the hydrological cycle, and, and on you go. You didn't think of that. It's, yeah, it sounds like an incredibly complex system, and if throwing trees down where they sh shouldn't be fuel in the fire, but it's potential fuel that could yeah, go on no, the fire. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, thinking about so the idea of planting trees and, you know, coming back to, I do some work, quite a lot of work on urban forests, you know, and people think, well, what is an yeah. urban forest? And, you know, London is a great example. London, there are nine million trees in London. There are more trees than people. Um, there are parts of London, we did some work showing that the amount of carbon stored per hectare in places like Highgate Cemetery mm -hmm. are equivalent to the carbon stored in tropical rainforests. Wow because there are big old trees that have been left untouched to grow for several hundred years and they're, you know, they're very beautiful and they're kind of, you know, they're, they're easy to leave there because no one wants to come in and cut trees down in the cemetery. So trees in cities are incredibly important, as we all know, they moderate temperature and we just like having them around and there are definite health benefits yeah. to having trees. Protecting trees that we have already, large old trees, London's full of them, yeah. but there's this race to plant more trees but where do you put them? The mortality rate is about 95% of oh, wow. trees. So you plant a tree and in 20 years it probably won't be there. And it's yeah. 20 years to 30 years is when it starts to really give you those benefits back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's similar again to myself. Uh, you know, I didn't do much for the first 30 years of my life. And now, you know. Just coming into your prime. Yeah, yeah me and Jesus were both a bit more <laughs> than that. So, so Matt, if, if you had a magic wand and based on all the incredible science you're doing, where would you plant trees? If you were in control, you were making policy, what should we do? One of the first things I do is, is and you know, it's actually one of the things I'm trying to do at the moment, is looking at what we have already 
because that's one of the things that is actually done. There's, there's, a, there's a race to see where should we plant more trees. And there are lots of spaces. There are lots of brownfield sites. I was just thinking about the UK. There's lots of brownfield sites. There are lots of areas of um, urban development where there are rules about you know, what you have to do in terms of planting trees and providing access to green space. But the rules are very easy to get around and they're very easy to, to game is perhaps the wrong word, but you can plant lots of small trees and then if there's no requirement for you to look after them after five years, after five years they'll be gone. Yeah. So Glasgow at the moment and Belfast are planting you know, a million trees. Again, a big number that's easy to communicate. In Belfast, they don't know where they're going to plant them. In Glasgow, there are, there are areas where they're going to plant. And there's no real then, um, okay, well, we're going to plant those trees and ensure that they survive at a rate of 50% for 25 years. People want to see yeah. the photo op, yeah, the planting, planting you know, hey, the, the nice fun picture, bit. the fun bit. And oh, then people work. don't want to th- come back every year and go, okay, well, yeah. what's happened and what's happening here and how long is this you know, going to live for? Are you going to sell this technology and give it I'm to everybody? Gonna, no, I'm not selling it. I'm going to, you know, we're going to make sure that it's out there. Open access science, that's what it's ah, all about. Brilliant, but, brilliant. You, know, the, you know, we're developing tools using things like Google Earth Engine where you can already do a far better job than is being done currently about assessing what we have in cities in the UK. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got data now that will allow us to do that from aircraft and from space. So why aren't we using it to inform policy better? Because it's really easy to do. That was absolutely that, fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've learned a huge amount about trees. And as you say, you know, protect the ones we already have, what ones are already doing well, and then the ones that you do plant, look after them for a long time. I think it sounds excellent. And hopefully one day we'll all have a scanner going around Absolutely. scanning our own trees. Well, we do. Trees we do the, you know, the space station's flying over at the moment. It's got a big laser on board that's measuring trees and forests. It's called JEDI. Of course it is. It's yes. a NASA instrument. Oh, I'm sorry. That's brilliant. The Global Ecosystem Dynamics Investigator. Just a little plot. I work with the JEDI team uh, and you know they've milked that for all its work. I bet, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Of course they have. You have to. I was going to say, can you imagine linking Jedi to your mobile phone so you could actually see there is, what trees... There is already a NASA app oh, that does this kind of there's thing. There's an app. Yeah. Oh, Jedi app. Well, a NASA trees. app that looks at, you know, tree size and, and, you know, can you estimate how much carbon is in your tree? Brilliant. You know. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem. Um, much nice appreciated. And and always like to talk about trees. Ah, I mean, clearly, and also I, I now realise that I like to listen to people, to <laughs> you talking about trees. So, uh, fantastic. So, Matt, we are asking our guests if you could keep one thing that we need in 30 years' time to help climate change, what would it be? Or if you could get rid of one thing that would no longer exist in 30 years' time, what would that be? Or create something new. Keep things is the whole belt of tropical rainforest. Yes, great answer. I mean, fairly sensible. Done. I'm going to need a fairly large A large, yeah, yeah. We're going to need somewhere to put it. To download the NASA app and try weighing trees yourself, visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash generation one. Okay, so our second guest for today is Craig Bennett, who is the CEO of the Wildlife Trusts and used to attend UCL. Um, So we'll talk about what the the Trust's mission is and why the work matters. Uh, Hello, Craig. Hello there. Lovely to speak to you. you. What did you do at UCL? I did the MSc in conservation, nature conservation, uh, which uh, at the time was a sort of a joint initiative between Department of Biology and Department of Geography, and I I loved it. That sounds like 
an interesting course and also you've gone on to clearly use your degree which is wonderful to hear <laughs> essentially yeah what is the mission of the wildlife trust and what do you spend your time doing well very simply it's to bring nature back bring wildlife back but i think given the science we've seen over the that emerge over the last few decades and you know that phrase that we've heard time and again that we're facing a climate and ecological emergency and the science really does back that up our mission now is simply that, that nature is being used to overcome those climate and nature emergencies and that uh, by 2030 that we are very clearly on the journey to having turned turned the corner on those uh, and make sure that all those trends we've seen of, of declining animal populations uh, of uh, parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere going up actually we've turned those around by 2030 and they're starting to head in, in the right direction. You, you touched there on how things have been declining, how things are getting worse. Let's start with the, the kind of bad news first. How bad has it has it got, or and, and how bad may it get? Well, uh, there's different ways of looking at it. Here in the UK, uh, the statistic I quote time and again is that 41% of our wildlife species have declined in abundance since the early 1970s. So, roughly in my lifetime, 41% wildlife species are poorer and thinner if you like than they once right. were in terms of the number of those individuals we've seen increased fragmentation of wildlife habitats and basically nature is not just not working the way it should be we do not have the functioning ecosystems in this country that we really should have uh, just in the last couple of weeks we saw a report by the natural history museum uh, saying that the uk is one of the most nature depleted countries anywhere in the world I mean, scientists have been warning us about it for decades. I remember two, three decades ago, the first time I came across the, the argument that if we continue to fragment wildlife habitats, particularly in the tropics, that that would lead to the emergence of uh, more and more pandemics. And so we've seen that with Ebola, with SARS, of course, back to HIV in the 1980s. And of course, most recently, I think almost certainly it will end up being proved that COVID was caused as a zoonotic escape from wildlife populations into humans because very simply we're not making enough space for nature. Yeah, I think that's an, a really interesting point, actually. As you say, I think a lot of people, especially in the West, perhaps felt like they were maybe insulated from things like this. Uh, how much worse could it get um, if we if we sort of continue on this path? Well, I mean, we are still seeing those wildlife declines. We're still seeing fragmentation of, of wildlife habitat. But what's so frustrating about that is we know what we need to do to turn that around. Um, I mean, globally, it's sort of been set now a target of trying to get 30% of our land and sea into recovery for nature by 2030. And that is the sort of bare essentials that we need to kind of turn this around. It's the kind of equivalent in biodiversity terms, if you like, of the 1.5 degree temperature goal in uh, around the climate talks. And um, we've needed that um, for biodiversity for a long time, something to focus on. And, you know, yes, there's sort of scientific underpinning as to why that's necessary. Yes, it's roughly around at least a, a third of our land and see if it can be managed primarily for nature and to let na nature thrive, then then that, that would provide the foundation for nature's recovery. But as ever with these things, like the 1.5 degree target, the 30% target, these are sort of a, a mismatch of, uh, of scientific targets and political targets, something that people can agree and kind of focus on. And the problem about this is, is that the change that you see, environmental change is not linear. 
the real concern that we have at the moment is that you can push, for example, on climate into a different state where you see positive feedback loops in the Earth system. Positive in this case is not good. What it means is you get this mutually reinforcing cycle in the Earth's climate system or in, in nature, where because as humans we've tipped things to a certain point, then it sort of moves into a new state and it's very hard to get back from there. You move into runaway climate change, for example. So we really have to act immediately. And if we could wave a magic wand and solve this tonight, that would be the thing to do. So, uh, but instead, what we have to do is we have to really, really determine that we're going to we're going to make a big difference by 2030 and put all the efforts into turning around the climate and ecological crisis in the next 10 years. Yeah, super point there about the, the kind of complexity of all of this as well. So, what would be in terms of uh, protecting and uh, land and sea by 2030? What are the sorts of things that need to be implemented there? What 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 are the actions that need to be taken at a kind of high level? I mean, it varies from country to country, but, but take the UK as an example. There's broadly three things we need to do. The first is we need to make more space for nature. So that does mean that we need to get, as I said, around 30% of our land and sea being managed uh, for nature. And at the moment, uh, actually, we've only got around 5% that is actually in good condition. So we've got a long way to go over the next nine years to get to 30%. That means we need to get our current designated sites, our sites of special scientific interest in good condition, and you know half of them are not at the moment. And national parks and our areas of outstanding attribute are landscape designations. They're not actually primarily wildlife designations, but managing them in a wilder way would help. At the moment, sometimes our wildlife is in a worse condition inside our national parks and outside them. But it's not just the quantity of land we're talking about, it's actually the connections between them as well. So good wildlife corridors linking up a, a current reserves and designated sites out in the countryside, including part of agriculture. Let's move to from intensive agriculture to regenerative agriculture where there's more space for nature. And we have those field boundaries that produce a nature recovery network. The second thing we need to do is restore the abundance of nature. So not just the space, but the abundance of our wildlife populations. You know, I was saying before how 41% of our wildlife species have declined in abundance in the last 40, 50 years, including, for example, some of our bee populations. A lot of that is associated with use of pesticides. So we absolutely need to be cutting the amount of pesticides we use, create more habitat for our wildlife populations and restore the abundance. But we also need to get nature working again. For example, our wetlands need to be wet, <laughs> as simple as that. And at the yep. moment, many of our chalk streams run dry. Uh, we need to reintroduce species that are missing, like beavers. So, for example, beavers are very good at holding water back into their landscape and being those ecosystem engineers that make sure our wetlands are wet. Uh, those are just some examples of what we need to be doing there to get nature working again. I do remember um, a couple of years ago when Michael Gove was the Environment Secretary, I think he released a pair of beavers back into the Forest of Dean. Um, do we need Michael Gove to go around the country just sort of throwing beavers in all the rivers? Well, uh, the Wildlife Trust, we have beavers in enclosures right across the country at the moment, uh, waiting for the permissions from DEFRA to allow us to to have free roaming beavers at the moment it is actually wow. against the law to release right. beavers okay. into the wild can you believe there is a consultation going on right now 
thankfully, about uh, to, to uh, by DEFRA to, to say, yes, beavers can be released in the wild and have wild roaming beavers. Nice. At the Wildlife Trust, we are beaver ready. We're absolutely ready <laughs> with these beavers in our enclosures, ready to, are right across ready the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we don't need Michael Go for that one. We just need to uh, be told by DEFRA, hopefully in the new year, that we can take down those fences and have beavers returning uh, to British ecosystems. And to put it clear, you know, there's sometimes a debate about reintroducing these species. Mm -hmm. They are yeah. just as British as Shakespeare or just as British as Yorkshire pudding or anything else you, you might like to choose. It is just a scandal that they've been missing from our ecosystems. Release the beavers. I'll wait for, I'll wait for that to be shouted from the rooftops. So thank you so much for, for joining us, Craig. Really appreciated um, chatting with you. We've got a question that we've been asking our guests which is just about thinking about a time capsule related to climate change. So, so is there something that you would like to get rid of over the you know something that doesn't exist in thirty years' time, or something that you would like to sort of keep in say thirty years' time, or is there something we you know we could create something brand new? Well, look, the obvious thing to get rid of, and you were talking before about how climate change, climate ecological emergency, can be really complicated. That's true. But also on one level, it's really simple. On climate change, you solve climate change if you stop using fossil fuels. It's as simple as that, really. Uh, it would be an oil barrel that I would put in that time capsule Great. to get rid of. Excellent. And that could be really clear. I like that. And I like that you've put you know, a barrel of oil in there, which is essentially lots of wildlife, but from a long, long time ago. Let's keep fossilised biodiversity fossilised. You're listening to UCL Generation One turning science and ideas into climate action. Well, that was Craig Bennett, the CEO of the Wildlife Trust, talking about wildlife, protecting it, and the fact that they are beaver-ready. Up next, Mark Maslin is going to round up uh, the week's news stories uh, that he thinks you should know about climate change. It might not even be news stories. It might be, you know, gossip columns. It could be Heat magazine. Uh, it's about heat, I think, now. I don't know. Anyway, point is, Mark's up next. Welcome to the most eagerly anticipated part of our podcast. Of course, it's the climate change news. Well, as you may have expected over the last week, there's been a flurry of post-COP26 analysis. Was it a complete failure? Has it kept hope alive? But for me, the bottom line is that it was a small step forward. It leaves the door open for an improved agreement at COP27 in Egypt, the African COP. Because one of the things that was agreed in Glasgow is that countries would be requested to submit new NDCs nationally determined contributions, or as you and I call them, pledges. So we can hopefully have increased ambition for next year. So it means we have 12 months to lobby, influence and harass governments around the world to try and get us back onto the one and a half degree track. What about other news? At COP26, banks, insurance and investors with about $130 trillion at their disposal, vow to put combating climate change at the centre of their work. This has already seen some dividends because, of course, the Zurich Insurance Group this week has announced that they will no longer underwrite new oil exploration projects. 
The German utility and trader RWE plans to spend $57 billion for renewables around the world as it closes its nuclear and coal plants in Germany. The giant SSE has announced uh, that they are going to put £12.5 billion of capital investment into decarbonisation to the year 2026. Now, SSE is notable for working with Equinor to develop the 3.6 gigawatt Dogger Bank wind farm off the northeast coast of England, which once all phases are completed, will be the largest offshore wind farm in the world. So this is Mark Masson signing off from the climate change news section of Generation One. I've been Matt Winning and that's it from this episode of Generation One from University College London, turning climate science into action. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a guest or leave us a voice note and an email that you would like to hear, then you can do that at podcasts at ucl.ac.uk. Otherwise, for more information about UCL's work, in the climate space and what our staff and students as well as our researchers are doing to make sure that we don't just talk the talk but actually walk the walk to a more sustainable future head over to UCL Generation 1 website or use the hashtag UCL Generation 1 